Well, good morning. Welcome to Harmony Bible Church. My name is Jason Pauly. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord, worshiping Him this morning. We've been working our way through the book of Colossians, and uh, I, I said at the beginning we were going to be working our way through the book in third gear. We weren't going to be in first gear. We weren't going to be in fifth gear. We were going to be in third gear, so at a moderate pace. And then we slowed down for a while as we spent some time in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. We slowed way, way down, almost to a complete stop, and kind of sat in those verses for a while. And now we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. We're in Colossians 2, verses 1 through 5. But before we do that, I just want to open uh, with a word of prayer. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. God, I pray and ask that You'd be with us now, that You would just work mightily in our hearts. God, I praise You for Your promise that You will build Your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God, I just pray and ask that as we gather, that we would worship You in spirit and in truth. I pray that Your Word would go forth and that we would be changed by it. God, I pray for all the churches in this area and up and down the coast and around the world today that are meeting, God, that they too would proclaim Your Word and that their lives would be changed, that they would grow closer to You through it. God, I pray especially uh, just for our neighbors down the street, I pray for Spruce Head Community Church that You'd work mightily in their midst as they gather right now. God, that You would fill that church. God, that people, many, many people from this community would hear Your message, would hear the Word would hear Your Word and know of Your love and come to You. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, before we get into our text this morning, I just want to do a quick overview, a quick review of the book of Colossians. As we've worked through, we've seen that Paul is addressing the church in Colossae. And while he didn't start this church, so to speak, he hadn't been there, he knows a lot about the church and he's heard about their faith and he knows that they're standing firm in the faith, but he's also concerned. He's concerned because he sees that there's false teachers in Colossae that are coming in and they're presenting a message contrary to the message of the Gospel. That they're saying that these these believers in Colossae need more than Jesus. That there's something more to be had. And he writes to them proclaiming the sufficiency of Christ. Saying that Christ is enough. And as we come to Colossians 2 verses 1 through 5, we'll see that same theme continue. So if you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Colossians 2 verses 1 through 5. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have, I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. 
So we're going to jump right in by looking at verse 1. Again, Colossians 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Here we see who Paul was burdened for. He was not only concerned with the spiritual health of those whom he had personally ministered to, but he also cared about all believers, every believer, including those believers whom he had never met. And this, I believe, is a strong testimony to the genuineness of Paul's desire to see the Lord Jesus Christ glorified. He says, I want you to know how great of a struggle I have for everyone, including those who have not seen my face. The word struggle comes from the same root word as striving that we saw just last week in Colossians 1.29, where he says, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. The Greek word is agon, and it's where we get our English word agonize. It carries the idea of striving to complete a task. It was often used in activity describing an athletic event. Paul wants the church to know that he's striving for them, that he has such a burden for them. Not only them, but also the entire church. And that he's willing to put forth whatever effort necessary for their growth. You see, this was undoubtedly Paul's attitude. Not because the church was great. Paul had this attitude in himself, not because the church was wonderful, but instead because genuine love for Jesus results in love for his church. See, Paul didn't love the church because it was the right thing to do. Paul loved believers because he loved Jesus. And that's evident in Scripture. Matthew 22, verses 36-40. through They asked Jesus, they said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to, and they, he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And then he said, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Or John 13, verses 34-35, through 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Or 1 John 4, 19-21 We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from Him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. 1 John 3.11 For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And lastly, 1 John 4.7 Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. You see, when we love God... We naturally love one another. See, Paul was burdened for the church because he knew the way Christ felt about the church. He understood the way Christ 
felt about His church. Scripture calls the church the bride of Christ. And we've all been guilty of being critical of the church. And while we should take a step back and examine where the church needs to grow and how the church can grow and how the, where the church is weak, we also should not be critical, overcritical of the church. We need to be careful about what we say about the church. The church is Christ's bride. And if one of you says something about my bride, I'm going to get upset. Imagine Christ and His bride. He loves His bride. Ephesians 5, 25-27 tells us that Christ loved the church and He gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, that He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. You see, Christ loved the church so much that He died for her and He continued to minister to her. So how can we say that we are members of His church if we do not love those for whom He died? We can't. So Paul is burdened for the church, the whole church. Not just believers in Colossae, but every believer in every area regardless of time. Everyone who would know Jesus Christ as their Savior, He was burdened for them. So having seen who Paul was burdened for, namely the entire church, let's consider what Paul was burdened about. Let's consider what he's, the, the topic, the subject of his burden is. Look at verse 2 with me. Colossians 2.2. 2. He says, "...that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding." resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself. Here we see the content of Paul's concern. In this section, Paul mentions three specific things that he is burdened to see in the life of the church. Number one, he wants to see the church encouraged in heart. Paul says, I'm burdened for the entire church, and here's what I'm burdened about. I want to see the church encouraged in heart. The Greek word for encourage is parakaleo. Okay, parakaleo, and it means to be exhorted or urged. And we often hear the word encourage, and we think of being lifted up. So yesterday I had a rough day at work, and, and I was down, and I was just upset with the way things were going, and I needed encouragement. And somebody could come along and give me encouragement and say, hey, you know, things are going to be okay. It's alright. You know, you're doing a good job. And there's an element where we use the word encourage in that way. But encourage also means something else. It means to point in the right direction. And what I really needed for encouragement yesterday is to be pointed in the right direction. I needed to be told, no, 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 you're being foolish. Go this way. Right? Stop acting and thinking this way. You need to go a different direction. I needed to be pointed. I needed to be encouraged to go the right way. I needed to be prodded, if you will. And clearly, that is the sense of the word here in the text. So we might say something like, I encouraged them to do the right thing. So Paul wants to see the church encouraged, pointed in the right direction, in heart. Now in order to understand this, we must understand the way the Scripture speaks of the heart. 
So we think of the heart as the place of emotion, right? And I've said this before. Oh, I love that person with all my heart. If you know me, uh, you've probably heard me utter, I love motorcycles with all my heart, right? However, the Bible generally uses the, the intestines as the place of emotions. And in our culture, it doesn't quite seem right to say, oh, I love motorcycles with all my intestines, right? But that's the way Scripture speaks of the place of the emotions as being down here. And that's why when we're, when we're nervous, when we have emotion, different emotions, we can kind of feel it in our belly, right? When the Bible talks about the heart, it's really talking about the place of the entire man, especially the central place of the man, the thinking or the mind. Let's look at a couple of examples of that. Psalm 53, verses 1-2. through It says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. This is not an emotion. This is a thought. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Or Jeremiah 17, verses 9-10 through says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind. Those are parallel phrases, right? I search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. I search the heart. I search the mind. I I know what a man thinks. Or Matthew 24, verses 34 through 35. You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. You see, the mouth spills forth that which fills the heart. See, and the heart is the place of thinking. And my problem is, sometimes I get thinking a certain way, and things come out of my mouth because I'm thinking those things I shouldn't be thinking. Right? I've done this before. I did this early on. I think the fir- one of the first times I was speaking here, and I love this illustration. Right? If I if, if I do this, what's happening? Besides, everything's getting wet. Right? What's happening? Water comes out. Why is water coming out of the bottle? What? Because that's what's in there, right? And we'll say, no, 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 water's coming out of the Bible because you're hitting it. No, it's because water is inside the bottle. So if evil and greed and wickedness and hate are inside of us, when we get provoked, guess what's going to come out of us? Right? The mouth speaks that which fills the heart. You see, sometimes I think we get things mixed up. We believe that stimuli comes into our lives and that that stimuli then causes emotions. And that those emotions, that, that, that they produce in us actions. And, and sometimes we get to a place in our life when we know our actions are wrong. And we'll go and we'll try to address our actions. So I get angry at somebody. And I say, I need to stop getting angry. And I try to suppress my anger and I try to stop being angry. And with all I can, I cannot change the fact that I am angry. 
So then I go back and I say, well, my actions haven't changed. I need to change my stimuli. I need to get rid of the things. I need to get rid of this, the thing that makes me angry. But we'll never get rid of stimuli. Not completely, right? And I don't mean that we shouldn't address things that cause us to sin, but we will never completely get rid of stimuli. Right? For a guy who struggles with lust, and we see this all the time in the church, for men who struggle with lust, they can't completely eliminate the stimuli. Right? For people who struggle with anger, they'll never completely eliminate the stimuli. And then we say, so then we go to a secular counselor, and the secular counselor says, well, it's because of your emotions. When you were a little child, your mother, she should have done such and such with you. Or your father wasn't around, and these emotions, they make you feel this way. But instead, we need to back up. We need to realize that stimuli cause thoughts. And thoughts produce emotions. And emotions produce actions. And then that produces more thoughts, more emotions, and more actions. And that is what builds character. See, stimuli comes into my life. It causes me to think. And the way I think about that stimuli will change the way I react to it. So I have a choice at the end of this message when Bill Batty says, that was the stupidest sermon I have ever heard in my life. Right? That's stimuli. I have a choice. I can think biblically about that stimuli and I can say, okay, God's teaching me something here and trying to show me something and what is, that, what is it that He's trying to show me and how do I learn from this? Or I can think, well, Bill Batty's a jerk himself, Right? And when I think unbiblically, it produces an unbiblical emotion. Right? And that produces more thoughts, more emotions, more actions. And that ultimately is what builds character. Proverbs 4, verses 20 through 27 says, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them depart from your sight. Keep them in the midst of your heart for they are life to those who find them, and health to to all their body. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away a deceitful mouth, and put devious speech from you. Let your eyes look directly ahead, and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil." So in this passage, you're thinking, what does that have to do with anything? In this passage, in verse 20, it says, incline your ear, right? Let your thoughts direct your thoughts, is the point. And then verse 23, watch over your heart, have correct thinking, right? Let your emotions, let your correct thinking produce biblical emotions. Watch your heart, make sure that you're thinking biblically, because that's going to produce the right emotion. And then 24, Put away from you a deceitful mouth. That'll produce the right action. And then watch the path of your feet and let your ways be established. That produces character. So you're probably thinking, we've heard this before. And now I've got water all over the edge of this bottle. We've heard this before, right? Why does he say this again? And why has he said this so many times? Because sometimes I think I hear us say things like, well, I, I just I am the way I am. Or I feel this way. I you know, when it when this happens to me, I just I feel this way. And I respond and I shouldn't do it, but I respond this way. 
You see, we don't have a behavioral problem or an emotional problem. We have a thinking problem. We need to think biblically so that when stimuli comes in, we can then deal with it biblically. So Paul says that it is his desire to see the church's hearts, their way of thinking, encouraged, pointed in the right direction. What he's saying is, I want to see your way of thinking be pointed in the right direction. Paul says, I want you to think biblically. Right? And next, Paul says, he says, not only do I want you to think biblically, number two, he says, he wants to see the church united in love. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, translates the Greek more literally here, and it says, knit together in love. In other words, Paul doesn't just mean that it is his desire for the church to have affectionate feelings toward each other. Right? He means more than just affectionate feelings. And by the way, he does want that. He does want affectionate feelings toward each other. And we're mutually responsible for this, by the way. That... Sometimes there are people in the church who it's hard to feel affectionately towards, right? There just are. And the reality is that we have to work at being affectionate toward them, and they need to work at living in such a way that we can be affectionate toward them. And we need to work in such a way that we can allow people to be affectionate toward us. There's a mutual responsibility in that. But when he says... He wants to see them knit together or united together in love. He's not saying that that's all that he wants, his feelings of affection. Instead, he's talking about agape love, sacrificial love. Love Love that exists for the benefit of the one being loved. Again, if you look at 1 John 3, we see in verses 14 through 18, the passage we just looked at, we see, it says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. For everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. You see, that's a tough, tough passage. Jesus laid down His life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We need to sacrifice. Sacrifice all. If that's what God calls us to do. For the brethren, for the other believers. That's the kind of love that Paul had for the church. That's the kind of love that caused him to say, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And it's the kind of love that Paul desired the rest of the church to have for each other. When was the last time you prayed for other believers in this church? When was the last time you prayed for believers outside of this church? When was the last time that you prayed for believers in all the churches? That you prayed for the church universal? 
And I don't know the answer to that question, but I know that sometimes we become so self-absorbed, focused on our life and our needs, that we forget to pray for, not just in word though, but also care for other believers. You see, Paul understood what love was, and that's what he wanted the church to demonstrate. He wanted to see love that was patient, kind, that was not jealous, did not brag, was not arrogant, did not act unbecomingly, did not seek its own, was not provoked, did not take into account a wrong suffered, didn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but instead, love that rejoiced with the truth, that bared all things, believed all things, hoped all things, and endured all things. That is love. And Paul was burdened to see the church united in love. So, so far we've seen that Paul's desire was to see the church encouraged in heart, right? to see their thinking pointed in the right direction, for them to think biblically. And he desired to see the church united in love, willingly sacrificing for each other. And now Paul says, number three, he says he wants to see the church complete and understanding. He goes on in the rest of verse 2 to say, attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself. You see, what Paul is saying is that he wants the church to experience the blessings, the wealth of being united in an understanding of what Christ had done for them. He says, I want you to experience the blessings of understanding the Gospel, and as you do so, you're going to grow closer to Jesus together in that. There's great great blessings and growing in the Gospel together. Being united in an understanding of the Gospel and then growing together in Christ because of that understanding. He said a similar thing in Philippians 1.27. He said, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the Gospel. He doesn't just say, striving for the advancement of the Gospel. Striving that you would create lots of programs to reach the community, which is not a bad thing to reach the community. Don't hear me saying that. What he's saying, though, is that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, that you're united, striving together for the faith of the Gospel. That you're striving not only to see others come to faith in the Gospel, but that you may be growing in your faith in the Gospel. You see, Paul knew that there were blessings to be had by standing together for the Gospel. And Paul wanted to make sure that the church was one mind, intent on one purpose, and that was living in light of Jesus Christ. Living in light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we as believers are called to live life together. And when I say live life together, I don't mean gather together on Sunday morning. I do not mean that we gather Sunday morning, we pass a plate, we sing some songs together, we talk about Jesus, and then we go home. Scripture calls us to do much, much more than that. Scripture tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12.10 To live in harmony with one another. Romans 12.16 Admonish one another. Romans 15.14 Greet one another with a holy kiss. Romans 16.16 
Wait for one another. 1 Corinthians 11.33 Have the same care for one another. 1 Corinthians 12.25 Be servants of one another. Galatians 5.13 I could go on. I'm not going to quote all the Scriptures, but we're called to bear one another's burdens, comfort one another, build one another up, be at peace with one another, do good to one another, put up with one another in love, be kind and compassionate to one another, submit to one another, forgive one another, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, love one another from the right heart, from the heart that's right thinking, right? Be hospitable to one another. Meet one another with humility. And we cannot do these things, not well, if we think we're going to do them on Sunday morning. I can't do all those things on Sunday morning. We are called to live life together. And in Colossians 2, Paul is saying that he wants us to experience the blessing the wealth that comes from growing together and being united in the Gospel. See, it's not a burden. Sometimes we think of it as a burden. Oh, now, you know, the pastor's saying, i got to do this other thing, and i gotta, I got to reach out to these other people, and i gotta, I got to do this. I'm so busy, right? But no, he's saying he wants them to experience the blessing, the wealth that comes from being united together in the Gospel and growing in an understanding Being united helps us come to a full assurance of understanding. An understanding of what Christ has done for us. For as Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, it says, Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And as we grow together, the beauty is that we become more personally uh, closer to Christ. That we In our personal walk with Christ, we grow in Him. So we grow together, but then we become more personally devoted to Christ. We know Him more and more. So having seen who Paul was burdened for, namely the entire church, and what he was burdened about, that they would be encouraged in heart, united in love, and complete in understanding, now let's let's look at why he felt such a burden to see these things lived out in the life of the church. Why did he feel such a burden? Look at verses 4-5 through with me. Colossians 2, verses 4-5. through I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I'm absent in body, nevertheless I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good dis- discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Paul wanted to be sure that the believers in Colossae we're not being deceived by the persuasive words of these false teachers. He knew that false teachers were coming in. He knew that they were using persuasive words. And he said, I don't want to see you be deceived by them. I, I want to make sure that you're able to stand firm. I don't want to see you fall away from your faith. And he knew that being encouraged in heart, having right thinking, and being united in love, striving together for the Gospel, and having the wealth, the, the blessing of being complete in understanding, knowing Christ, would cause them to be steadfast. He said, I don't want you to fall. And I know, I know what, what can be done to prevent that. He said, you need to be encouraged in heart. You need to have right thinking. You need to stand together. You need to strive for the Gospel. And you need to grow in Christ together. 
Because I don't want you to fall. I don't want you to be led astray. And we think, what does this have to do with us? We don't have false teachers coming in. I, I assure you, you do. Every single night when you get home from work or whatever you do, you go home and you turn on the false teacher. You turn on the false teacher every night. You gather your, your living room furniture around the false teacher and you let the false teacher bring its teaching into your homes. And I'm guilty, right? I'm guilty at times when I, I, I turn on the TV and I, see what's, and I hear what's being said and, and maybe I'm not watching something that's bad or evil, but there's false messages coming through all the time. And maybe you say, I don't watch TV. I don't have a TV in my house. I assure you, you are being influenced by false teachers. The culture in which we live in is constantly bombarding us with messages. Messages that try to make us think that they're what's most important. Messages, frankly, that lead us away from Christ. And Paul says, you've got false teachers in your midst, Colossae. And I know what you need. And I'm burdened for you. I'm burdened for you. Because I really want to see that you're living out these things. I want to see that you're encouraged in heart, that you're united in love, and that you're complete in understanding. So in review, we've seen who Paul was burdened for. He was burdened for the entire church. We've seen what he was burdened about. That that the church was encouraged in heart. That they were pointed in the right direction in their thinking. That they were thinking biblically. That they were united in love. They were standing together for the Gospel. And they were complete in understanding, growing in their understanding of Jesus and His work on the cross. And then we also saw why He felt such a burden was necessary. So that they would remain steadfast and firm in their faith. So here's the question. So how do we apply all of this to our lives, both individually and corporately at Harmony Bible Church? How do we take this and then apply it to our lives both individually and corporately? Well, we like Paul should be burdened for the church. We should be burdened for the church. Christ died for the church. He loves the church. And we should be burdened. We should be praying for the church. We should be caring for the church. We should love all of those who call on the name of Jesus. Not just in word, but in deed. And as we think about last week's message on sacrifice, what are we willing to do to really let that play out in our lives? What are we willing to do to love the church? What are you going to tell God is too much? What's too much of a sacrifice for you? He laid down His life for the church and said that we should lay down our lives for the brethren as well. So how should such a burden affect our lives? How should such a burden for the church affect our lives? Well, number one, we must strive to encourage one another in heart. We must point each other in the direction of biblical thinking. Right? We have to come to a place where when somebody says, I'm struggling with such and such, or I'm thinking I'm going to do this, we say, whoa, wait a minute, have you thought about what the Scripture says? And we're pointing each other in the direction of biblical thinking. Some of the greatest problems in the church could be solved if we would just quote Scripture to each other. And I don't mean quote Scripture in some judgmental 
looking down way where we say, well, if you would just apply the Ten Commandments to your life, I'm talking about applying Scripture. Things like, no temptation has seized you, except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, will provide an escape, a way out, so that you can endure it. That we remind ourselves of those things, those promises in Scripture. That God causes all things to work together for good. That if we, call, if we help each other think biblically, we will encourage one another in heart. Point each other in, into the direction of biblical thinking. That's what we must do. Number two, we must strive to be united in love. Not just affectionate, but instead lay down our lives for each other. I had a professor in school who uh, he was a pastor and a professor, and uh, one of his church members knew that he needed a car. So, the church member bought a new car, and um, they gave him their old car. And uh, he, he was thrilled at such a sacrifice. And they came to him about a week later, and they said, Pastor, we're sorry. We made a horrible mistake. And he said, I understand, you know, that financially in the moment you may have thought, you know, this was a help, and financially it may have created a burden on you, and I don't want to create undue burden. It's not a problem for you to take the car back. And they said, no, 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 Pastor, that's not what we mean. We should have given you the new car. And they took the old car back and gave him the new car. Because they understood what it meant to sacrifice. They understood that what Jesus gave was so much more than a car. We need to not just be affectionate, but instead lay down our lives for each other, for the whole church. Not just this church, the whole church. And I can't tell you all of what that might mean for you personally. It might mean giving up a lucrative job. It might mean giving up possessions. It might mean sacrificing time doing things you love. But I know that God has called us to lay down our lives for the sake of the brethren. And number three, we must strive to be complete in understanding. We must always remember what Christ did for us and the blessings that come by growing together in Him. The Christian life is not a life we live alone, not a life that we're intended to live alone. There's blessings that come from growing together in Him. Huge blessings. So don't go it alone. You were not meant to go it alone. We must strive to be complete in understanding, knowing Christ more and more every day, growing in Him and doing it together. Let's pray. Father God, thank You for today. Thank You for Your grace. God, I pray and ask that You'd be with us. God, I just pray and ask that as we think about the, the way Paul cared for the church, Paul's burden for the church, that they would be encouraged in heart, that they would be pointed in the right direction, that they would be thinking biblically, God, that we too would think biblically, that whatever circumstances come into our lives, that we would examine them in light of Scripture, in light of the Gospel. God, that we would recognize the truth of Your Word, that You cause all things to, to work together for good. For those who love You, who are the called according to Your purpose, God, I just pray and ask 
that you'd help us to see that you are working all things together for our good, and that good is to make us more like Jesus Christ. Help us to live with that reality. Help us to live in light of that reality, that we may examine all things according to your word, whether good or bad, and live in such a way that is glorifying to you. God, I pray that we would be united in love, that as we, as we live life together, that we would strive for the gospel, that we would strive to see the gospel lived out in our own lives, that we would see the gospel lived out in the lives of brothers and sisters both here and around the world. God, that you would be glorified as we do so. And God, that we would recognize that a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And God, I pray and ask that you'd help us to be complete in understanding, always growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That we would know the mystery, the mystery that is the mystery of the Gospel, the mystery of Christ Himself. That thing which was made known to us We praise You for that. The thing that once was hidden and now has been made known, the mystery of the Gospel. Praise You for that, Father. Help us to grow in knowing You and in obedience to You. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Jason Polly, pastor of Harmony Bible Church in South Thomason, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others And for more information about Harmony Bible Church, visit www.harmonybible.org. God bless, and to God be the glory.